0: This audio program is a ministry of Clear Note Fellowship. For more information, go to clearnotefellowship.org. It's good to be with you this morning. A week ago, at this time, we were up in the hospital welcoming God's newest gift to our family, a little granddaughter, and this is a year of three grandchildren for us. But I'm looking forward to, if God's willing, a year when we'll have five grandchildren one year. That's without twins. I'm I'm hopeful that we'll have that. There's a family in our church that has four children. Well, the parents are not part of the church, and one of the children is not, but three of the adult children are in our church. And in one year, all four of the children had babies, and that's one of the happiest families I know. And so I'm looking forward to that kind of happiness. I trust many of you will have it as well. Let's begin by asking God to watch over us as we consider his Holy Spirit and for his spirit's presence. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for a clear note and the joy of being here. I thank you for giving me the privilege of being part of this family and having two church families. Thank you for the way that you've bound our churches together. Thank you for the, the many individuals who have been responsible for this, Heavenly Father, the uh, Many of the men who have, been, who have been part of the work together, thank you for Tim and our love for each other, for David Carell and the way that he was with us and is now here, and the joy of that. Thank you for Stephen and his work with the Pastors College. Thank you for Mike Bull's Father, and the way that he has blessed us even as he's part of here. Thank you for the many elders, Father, for years of knowing them and working with Wayne Huck and others. I praise you for the way that our churches are bound together, and I pray that you'll allow this to continue and to grow. And Now we ask that the Holy Spirit will be glorified by our consideration of his work and that his presence may aid us and particularly me as we speak about the word of God. In Jesus' name, Amen. It is common for speakers in an event like this to, to preface their remarks by saying, nothing's more important, nothing's more needed. And, and uh, every one of us could probably say that. What's more important than the atonement? What's more important than the new birth? What's more important than the Holy Spirit? <laughs> I used to say only old men say that. I think it's probably from years of reading sermons by Martin Lloyd-Jones where every sermon was the most important thing and every sub-point of the sermon was the most important point. <laughs> and I, as I've grown older, I've begun to realize, well, it's kind of true because if the Holy Spirit is involved in preaching and we believe he is, then at that moment there is nothing more central or more important and you're always going to feel that as a congregation when you come under the word of God and every preacher should feel that no matter what he is preaching on. And so (laughs) I claim the most important topic this morning. (laughs) If we believe as the reformers did that the preaching of the word is the word of God, then the Holy Spirit is active in biblical preaching. And where the Holy Spirit is and where he is leading is the most important place for us to be. Now, having said this, let me clearly make, make clear, specify the claim that I am telegraphing that nothing is more central to evangelicalism because that is the topic of our conference than a particular view of the Holy Spirit. And let me make clear as well that the The negative is also true. Nothing is more destructive of evangelicalism than a false understanding of the Holy Spirit's power and work. It is the end of evangelicalism when the work that the scripture ascribes to the Holy Spirit is attributed elsewhere. It is the end of evangelicalism when the Holy Spirit's work is not sought. When we attribute the work of the Holy Spirit elsewhere, we are denying him and we come close to blasphemy when we do not seek the Holy Spirit then we have we have offended God himself. So I want to add in in specifying what I'm preaching on what we're studying together and thinking about evangelicalism that the evangelical movement historically taken is I would say this, the work of the Spirit across the ages. Evangelicalism is synonymous with the work of the Holy Spirit. No age has an exclusive claim on evangelical orthodoxy. Wherever the Holy Spirit of God has been at work across the millennia, there you have had evangelicalism. There the Spirit was working in power, and there the evangelical movement was being revealed. Now, many of us may think of the Holy Spirit as being characteristic of certain branches of the church and we may think that certain groups have a claim on the spirit but of course that's not true and we may think that being reformed in a sense inoculates us to those churches and maybe by implication to those views of the spirit and the necessity of the spirit but that is a very great mistake the fact that the charismatic movement claims the spirit is to their credit it doesn't mean that they always have it, nor that they are always seeking it in the right ways, but at least they're seeking the main thing. And it's to our discredit that we would ever think that we can be a people in a church that can get by without the work of the Holy Spirit, without the power of the Holy Spirit. For many years, I avoided calling myself an evangelical. Back about 20 years ago, 22 years ago, I got invited to be an, uh, the pastor of a church in, overseas in Europe. And while I was there, I realized that these people were from the background that I was fleeing, the evangelical background, and they had the sort of pride and now I'm talking about evangelical as a, a narrower trait at this point, what we might consider evangelical as we talk about the evangelical movement in America. And they were filled with the, the aspects of evangelicalism that, that I had fled from by going to take a little United Brethren Church in Toledo, Ohio, actually in Monclova, Ohio. And uh, and I saw their pride and I saw their money and I saw their self-confidence and the liberties they took, their lack of holiness. The main elder, the, the first night that we were together used a term in a congregational meeting with a few less people than are here, but, but he, he called someone a name, a driver on the road on our way to the meeting that made me go, whoa. Now he was British and I wondered if it was simply because he was British that he used it, but I think it was more so, and as I talked to younger people in the church, it's more so because the work of the Holy Spirit was not going on in his life. And that's why he spoke that way. So I, I was asked by a group of women uh, during one of the, the interrogation sessions that was part of the, the process of being called as a pastor. Um, I met in this very wealthy house on the shores of a lake with a group of women and they said, what, what would you say you are? Are you, and I know they wanted me to say evangelical. They may have even asked if I was an evangelical, and I looked at these wealthy women, and I said, no, I'm a fundamentalist, <laughs> because I knew it would offend them, and I, I, I wanted to offend them, and, and, and they all sort of went, oh, And then they asked me to define fundamentalist and it came pretty close to what they thought evangelical was and so they sort of backed down in their concerns but they were probably the 26% of the vote I didn't get when I was called. (laughs) And so the the label evangelical is one that we've flown from but I think it's ripe for the reclaiming. About 10, 15 years ago, I was at a conference at a college in, in Indiana, in Northern Indiana where a famous evangelical had come to speak. And he was speaking on feminism and the way the church has failed to embrace women and how we should realize that women are equal with men in all ways, which I didn't disagree with, but that they are called to every position within the church. And he was seeking to influence the denomination that I was a part of at that time by speaking at their college to embrace women as pastors. And there was an agenda that had invited him. His name was Gilbert and He was a professor at Wheaton College. Some of you may know of him. And uh, he was the one who led the Willow Creek movement to embrace women pastors through his influence on Bill Hybels. And so he was coming to our conference or our denomination, and I decided I was going to go with another pastor and oppose him. Even though we were the only pastors in this group of students, we were going to speak against him. Well, he knew Tim's and my dad. And he, my, our, our dad had been a hero of his. And so when he learned who I was afterwards and that I was the guy who'd been opposing him, he was a little bit respectful of me because he, he had really liked our dad. But I was opposed to him and he knew it. And he said to me, in his attempt to be kind, he said to me, you know, David, the, the entire evangelical world is gonna be where I am in 20 years And I looked at him and I said, Dr. Bill Bilizikian, you're wrong. I said, you and I won't even be considered a part of the same movement in 20 years. Our movement is breaking apart and you're gonna be in a different church and I'm not even gonna know you. The the last bonds that hold this group together sociologically are gonna be gone and you're gonna be out there and I'm gonna be somewhere else. And that's what's happened. In the years since, there is no evangelical movement anymore. And the term, which is glorious, is ripe for the reclaiming. And so I say to you, we pick it back up and we say, we stand with those who have emphasized evangelical truths, which are the new birth, the authority of the scripture, holiness, and the power of God. And those are the four things I'm going to speak about the Holy Spirit in light of this morning. That we pick those things back up and we say, We stand in a glorious train along with men like Augustine who in his fight against Pelagius and the Pelagians affirmed the depravity of man, the original sin of man against the claim of Pelagius that man possesses a freedom of the will that allows him to obey and please God and affirmed evangelicalism and was in a sense the first evangelical. He taught... Evangelical truths, the new birth, the inability of man to obey God, the necessity of the Holy Spirit to work a work in us that was described by Stephen just a few moments ago. St. Patrick, I'm going to list a few different people who are evangelicals in my mind, not because um, St. Patrick was a theologian, but because he was evangelical in his approach. He went to Ireland and he believed in God and he preached the power of God in his Preaching had the power of God, and he evangelized with incredible power. John Wycliffe, who translated the Bible into English so that the people could read it and opposed the clericalism of Rome, who taught that a personal walk with God was more important than any official position in the church. What an evangelical hero. And a hundred and some years before Martin Luther or John Calvin or the others that we regard as central to evangelicalism. John Huss, a century before Luther preached against indulgences, John Huss in Prague was preaching against indulgences, preaching against the clericalism of the Roman church. Powerful, powerful man. And there are still Hussite churches in Czechoslovakia and Hungary. Martin Luther... Who taught that justification comes from God rather than through human works? And we could go on, Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield. Probably I'd put in there John and Charles Wesley, even though they reneged on some of the truths that Augustine fought for. But they understood the depravity of man if they did not understand the, the immense power of God and the Holy Spirit. And more recently, or in different areas, not more recently than Edwards or Whitfield, but a little more. Adoniram Judson, William Carey, missionaries. Then in the last century, Francis Schaeffer, just before the last century, B.B. Warfield, Martin Lloyd-Jones, Elizabeth Elliot, the last of the evangelicals are dying. Elizabeth Elliot was perhaps the last of that great train, and now we're reclaiming it. John Piper, an evangelical. Many more could be listed in the... A few I've mentioned could probably be argued against, but what unites all these men and women is a high view of the authority of the Holy Spirit and a willingness to wait on the Holy Spirit for power. Not just a high view, but a willingness to wait for the Holy Spirit and the Spirit's power rather than to essay forth under their own power no one of course more fully represents the dependence of evangelicalism on the holy spirit than the one man whose name i've left out of that list, and that's john calvin john calvin is called by many the theologian of the holy spirit and if you've read the institutes you might be forgiven for thinking that it's just a natural term to apply to him and that it's been applied Ever since his 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 life and his teaching became known, but it, it actually is a rather recent term applied to him. It was B.B. B. Warfield, who in an address in 1909 on Calvinism, a series of three addresses, <coughs> called Calvin the Theologian of the Holy Spirit. I want to read from Warfield about Calvin. Warfield said it is probable that Calvin's greatest contribution the theological science lies in the rich development which he gives and which he was the first to give to the doctrine of the work of the Holy Spirit no doubt from the origin of Christianity everyone has been even everyone who has been even slightly imbued with the Christian spirit has believed in the Holy Spirit as the author and giver of life and has attributed all that is good in the world and particularly in himself to his holy offices And of course, in treating of grace, Augustine worked out the doctrine of salvation as a subjective experience with great vividness and in great detail. And the whole course of this salvation was fully understood, that is by the teaching of Augustine, was fully understood, no doubt, to be the work of the Holy Spirit. But in the same sense, in which we may say that the doctrine of sin and grace, this is Warfield saying this, he says, in the same way that we may say that the doctrines of sin and grace Date from Augustine, the doctrine of satisfaction, Christ's blood satisfying the propitiatory wrath of God as Pastor Harlan spoke to us yesterday of, dating from Anselm, the doctrine of justification by faith from Luther we must say that the doctrine of the work of the Holy Spirit is a gift from Calvin to the church. So if grace came from from Augustine, satisfaction from Anselm, justification by faith from Martin Luther, Warfield says, we received the doctrine of the Holy Spirit from Calvin. It was he who first related the whole experience of salvation specifically to the working of the Holy Spirit, worked it out into its details, and contemplated it several steps and stages in orderly progress as the product of the Holy Spirit's specific work in applying salvation to the soul. Thus he gave systematic and adequate expression to the whole doctrine of the Holy Spirit and made it the assured possession of the church of God. Now we're going to continue on in what he says in the next two paragraphs I'm going to read brings a little more bite and a little more application, applicatory power to our day and our church it's been common to say that Calvin's entire theological work may be summed up in this that he emancipated the soul from the tyranny of human authority and delivered it from the uncertainties of human intermediation in religious things, in other words from the power of men to be our advocates and intermediaries with God, that he brought the soul into the immediate presence of God and cast it for its spiritual health upon the free grace of God alone. Where the Romanist, where the Roman Catholic placed the church, it is said, John Calvin set the Deity. What Calvin did was specifically to replace the doctrine of the church as the sole source of assured knowledge of God and the sole institute of salvation by the Holy Spirit. Previously, men had looked to the church for all the trustworthy knowledge of God obtainable and as well for all the communications of grace accessible. Calvin taught them that neither function has been committed to the church, but God the Holy Spirit has retained both in his own hands and confers both knowledge of God and communion of God with God on whom he will. In his introduction to Kuyper's The Work of the Holy Spirit, Warfield wrote, stated in its sharpest form, the developed doctrine of the work of the Holy Spirit is an exclusively Reformation doctrine, more particularly a Reformed doctrine, more particularly still a Puritan doctrine. We are men and women, and to the degree that we call ourselves reformed, to the degree we call ourselves heirs of the Puritans, we are men and women of the Holy Spirit. It is our character. It is the ground of our faith. It's absolutely true. The door that separates evangelicalism from every competing system and every other form of Christianity is her claim on the divine sovereignty of God, And especially that sovereignty over salvation. And the hinge upon which that door that separates us, the sovereignty of God, the hinge upon which that door operates and turns is the authority of the Holy Spirit. So my goal this morning is to describe the evangelical view of the Holy Spirit in four basic areas of the Spirit's work as they are described by Christ. And to differentiate the evangelical view in each of these areas from competing views, Many of which are found today in churches that claim the name Evangelical and Reformed. Let's not be ignorant. Many churches which say they're Evangelical and Reformed do not have an Evangelical view of the Holy Spirit's power in these areas. And we have to be aware of that and recognize that right off. We can't be without self-examination and self-awareness as we think about this doctrine, the Holy Spirit. And I'm afraid there's an inevitability that I'm gonna walk a little bit on Stephen as he walked a little bit on me and I'm gonna walk a little bit on Tim who follows me as he walked on me. But when you speak of the Holy Spirit, he is the spirit, he is the air that we breathe, he is the life and so everything partakes of the Holy Spirit and when we talk about the Holy Spirit, we can't do so without trampling on a lot of different areas. You can't stay off the grass when you're talking about the Holy Spirit first area is the area of salvation and I want to read to you from John heard it earlier but just again it won't hurt us at all to hear the words of Jesus about the Holy Spirit John 3 1 through 8 now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus ruler of the Jews in fact I can skip that part I can go to verse 4 because we just looked at it Nicodemus said to him how can a man be born when he is old he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born can he Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it comes from and where it's going. so is everyone who is born of the spirit. Stephen just preached on the evangelical doctrine of conversion we must return there however in speaking of the work of the Holy Spirit Jesus says two things to Nicodemus that are particularly important to an evangelical doctrine of the Holy Spirit first it is an immense miracle to be born again it is a miracle to come to eternal life It is such a miracle that Nicodemus, who is a teacher of the Jews, goes, whoa, how can this happen? He calls it, Jesus calls it being born again. Says, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Now we know this term, to be born again. And we should not be embarrassed to use it because it's powerfully expressive of what we are all about. We are people who have been born again says some fundamentally important things about the nature of salvation it's the kind of offensive term to others that's good to use we should say I have been born again have you been born again people will say but I was born okay the first time and we will say no you weren't it's a diagnostic tool it's the kind of thing that lets it's the tip of the wedge that gets you in the door and lets you hammer something home we are born again that's why Nicodemus scoffs at Jesus' statement He doesn't find it a good thing. He goes, what? How can a man be born when he's old? He can't enter a second time into his mother's womb, can he? And in response, Jesus answers, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, that water may be baptism. I don't want to debate the issue. It may be the water of of childbirth. That's probably what I prefer. But either way, it doesn't matter. Unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Uh, we understand that by being born of the water, he is referring to something that is natural. Whether it's baptism, and I'm I sorry if this offends you to say that baptism is natural, but it is. The power of baptism is natural. The power behind it that it stands for, just like the communion elements, natural. Not transubstantial, not changed into the body and blood of Jesus. There is a spiritual reality that is behind it that is in heaven, and we are drawn up there by the Holy Spirit. But in itself, it is not the body and the blood, and we are not re-sacrificing. Same with baptism. There is no power in baptism, except it come through the word of God and be mediated by the Holy Spirit. Baptism is natural. So regardless of what Jesus is meaning when he says born of the water, he's speaking of something natural. Natural childbirth, natural baptism, that natural thing. Unless a man is born of the natural means and of a supernatural means, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. So he must have a fleshly birth, but you must also have a birth by the Holy Spirit. You must be born of the flesh naturally in accord with what man can do, whether it's your mother or the pastor at baptism. You must be born of the Spirit supernaturally in a manner the flesh can't do. Have you been born naturally? Of course you have been. And speaking to a people in a church, you can usually say, and you've been born naturally through your baptism as well. But we don't leave it there. You must be born supernaturally of the Spirit. Supernaturally. Supernaturally. Now the second thing that flows from this that we have to understand about salvation as Jesus teaches Nicodemus is that because it is supernatural, you can't make it happen. I don't care how many times you show the Jesus film. You can't make it happen. I don't care how you pare down, as Nate Harlan was speaking about, the message of the gospel to remove its offense. You can't make it happen. I don't care how many times you sing verses of songs at the altar call. Most of you don't know that, but when I took my first church, I was told you have to do an altar call every Sunday. So I even know something of this. It doesn't matter. You can't make it happen. It is not a matter of the human will. This is where Calvin is so perfectly evangelical. He's teaching us, you can't do it and you can't make it happen. I want to say both of these. You can't do it to yourself. You can try and try and try, and you are not getting anywhere. It's like you, th- you hear the wheels spinning, and you think you're going somewhere. There's smoke. The engine's roaring. The RPM is at 7,000, but you're stuck in mud. Some of you know this from your past. You sought God. You said, I want to be a Christian. I want, And God did not give you the power. And you said, well, why do they have it? I know there's something there, but I can't taste it. I don't have it. And God had not done it. You may have grown embittered. You may have longed more for it. You can go a thousand different ways. You can't make it happen. You can't bear yourself over again. impossible. You can can bore yourself, but you can't bear yourself. (laughs) And, And this is something that we need to recognize about ourselves but it's also something we need to recognize as we are working with other people. Jesus emphasizes the impossibility of this by saying the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it but you don't know where it's coming from or where it's going. So is everyone who's born of the spirit. We don't know. We don't know how it's going to happen. We can't predict it. It's not ours to accomplish any more than it's ours to do to ourselves. We can't do it. Now, we can have good technique. And we can make sure that we're doing things and explaining them in a way that's positive. And we can make our church attractive from the street. All these are things that are good to do. We can make sure our musicians play well to the glory of God. We can do a lot of things that will be attractive. But being attractive, <laughs> I have a, a young woman that I think of in my church. She's very attractive. But being attractive doesn't mean you get a guy, does it? (laughs) You know, it just doesn't. It doesn't necessarily lead anywhere. This is especially true of the church. God is in control. It's not something you wish for and receive. It goes where it wishes. You don't control this wind. You see its effect. You don't control this spirit any more than you can control a hurricane or a tornado. The spirit is the wind of God, and it's sovereign He does as he pleases. He's in control. Now, there's some implications of this. We must get a view of the scope of the effects of the spirit by understanding the supernatural character of the new birth. The new birth is a new person. It is a new life. The old has gone. How many of us can sit here and say, I remember a time when I hadn't tasted it, and then I remember when I came alive. How many of us can do this? This is something all of us should be able to say. It was a new birth. It was incredible. The old had gone. The new had come. And I don't know how it happened. I do know I didn't make it happen. I do know that God did it. It's like the difference between standing at the side of the Grand Canyon and looking at a picture of it. So many of us are looking at pictures of the new birth rather than standing at the side of it, standing in the presence of it. Another implication, we see the powerless of man in its radical, miraculous nature. We are dead in our sins and God raises us to life by giving us a second birth, It's his to do. It's his to ordain. It's his to accomplish. It's his glory. It's his power. It's from God. It's to God. It is God doing something. And we're passive. In the process of the new birth, we're babies. I honestly believe that it's impossible to be a child of God headed for the kingdom of heaven and yet believe that you did this thing, that you affected this change. I was in a church for many years with many dear men and women who who would define themselves if they knew the term as Arminian. That they believed they they sought God and brought it about. Now, I don't know how to parse and divide. You know, I think some of them were better Calvinists, actually, though they would have officially said that they were Arminian than some of the Calvinists who are in my church who say they're Calvinists. You know, by their prayer and their dependence on God, they may say, I chose God. But when you'd hear them pray, you'd have the sense that they were dependent on God. So I I, want to be careful in saying this, but I think there is a sense in which Calvinism Calvinism is coterminous with Christianity. That if you say, I did this thing, then it didn't happen. You haven't tasted it. Because if you think you did it, it's been shallow. It's been weak. It hasn't been a new birth. So... uh, (sighs) I think it's possible that many people that we credit with being born again are simply not born again. Let me add that David in his, in his writing and the story we have of, of him in scriptures never seems to have known a time in his life when he didn't know the power of God and the spirit of God. He was a covenant child. He grew up in the church. He was like the the children of our churches. He grew up in the church. And it doesn't appear there was ever a time when he didn't worship God. A young boy, and yet he's doing great acts of faith. God is saying, I know his heart as a young man. Yet he clearly asks God in Psalm 51 to restore to him the joy of salvation. And he knows what it is to have the Holy Spirit in him and to have a new disposition. And he fears losing it. Even those saved when they were very young should know the joys of regeneration, of repentance, of confession, of being set free from sin. And they should know that it's of God and that it's not something that occurs naturally. The dangers that we face in the current environment of the reformed evangelical world, this environment that diminishes the sovereign and miraculous nature of the Holy Spirit's work in the new birth, comes in two directions. There is first a danger that many have focused on over the past 40 or 50 years, and that's the danger that provides the impetus for what's known as the new Calvinism that has recently come into vogue. That danger is of coming to believe that we control the Holy Spirit, that we can control the work of God. Some years ago, I was at a, a charismatic church in Toledo, and I've told this story often. Everyone's heard it. I, I repeat it over and over again because it stands as a symbol, it's a type of something. There was an evangelist who had been invited and I was invited by a young man who was at our church and, and at a Bible study but attended this church where his dad was an elder on Sunday mornings. He asked me to come. They were having a healing service one night and so we skipped our Bible study. We went to the church. They had an evangelist come in from, from India. He, was, he began the service with a video. There's some singing and then there was a video And this was early 90s, so it took time to set it up. It may have even been a movie, I can't remember. And the video alternated between shots of him preaching to vast crowds in amphitheaters on the Indian subcontinent and interviews with people who were in those crowds who told of miracles they had seen him perform, including raising the dead. And and it struck me as i was watching it i can't imagine any great worker of of the spirit's power needing a video to introduce himself and i don't think the apostle paul ever came to corinth and said you know i want to show you what i did in Ephesus yeah he didn't need to but this man needed to and then he came on and he started speaking and it, he it was like a a steam engine gaining, and and at the end of the workup, before he started the, the, the prayer service and the healing service, he shouted, Holy Spirit, I release you. And I remember thinking, whoa, that is blasphemy. It's blasphemous. Now, I don't think what he did is much different from the things that are closer to us studying Saddleback Sam, figuring out how to get him into church, making a church where Saddleback Sam or, you know. Um, oh, I'm from Chicago, but I'm 56 years old, and I can't remember the town where Willow Creek is. Dundee? not the, Barrington Bill, all right? Yes, <laughs> you know. Whether we study Saddleback Sam, Barrington Bill, Toledo Tim, or Tom, it doesn't matter who we're studying. If, if we have to know the people and pay it to them, then it's not the Holy Spirit, is it? It's the same as this, this evangelist saying, Holy Spirit, I release you. Except we're not so crass. We, we don't actually say I release you. We just think I've released him. We actually have less regard for the Holy Spirit perhaps than that man who actually spoke to the Holy Spirit but we presume the Holy Spirit. But it's just as denigrating of the character and power of the Spirit to imply that we control him in matters of salvation. Do you ever talk about having led someone to the Lord? Now, Paul does say at times, I think he actually says, I was an instrument, he says I was a, an ambassador of grace and that I, have, I am a steward of God's grace. And he speaks about having been their father in the faith and salvation. But he also in Corinth says, you know, I didn't even baptize any of you guys. It's a dangerous thing to say, I led this person to the Lord. I led this person to the Lord. I mean, praise God at times we have the privilege of being handmaidens to the process. But it's a bad thing if the midwife thinks she actually brought this child into existence, right? And it's really kind of proud of the midwife to claim the glory of the birth. This is a very common thing in our churches. I led this person to the Lord. I led him to the Lord. The immediate baptisms at the close of special services practiced by an increasing number of Baptist churches today, including, as we've learned, the seating of the congregation with people who are primed to go forward, who've already been baptized, but they're going to set a standard they're going to be examples to the rest. Very publicly, they're told to wend their way through the congregation as they go down on Palm Sunday to be baptized. And they don't actually get baptized again, but they're, they're seeding it for those who will. Many, many ways that we blaspheme the Holy Spirit. I could go on and probably get pretty close to things that you and I might do. I hope you're aware of this danger and you agree with it. Where we are more susceptible, perhaps, is in the second area of danger I'd like to mention, an area that arose out of the disdain of many of us for the manipulative, man-focused methods of evangelism that I've just been speaking about, that arose in the evangelism, the evangelical world of the 1800s and 1900s and that were the heirs of. Some of you are aware of a recent phenomenon in our circles, reform circles known as federal vision. Now, there are twists that are unique to this teaching, but in the end, it's not sui generis. It's not unique and fabulously out of the blue, de novo, you know, something that never has been seen before. It's a chip off an old block, and that old block has been around since long before the Reformation. And since the time of the Reformation, the children of the Reformers have constantly wanted to step back towards Rome. Every case of it, ranging from the Anglo-Catholicism of England in the days of Bishop Ryle in the 1800s to the infatuation with Rome and with Orthodoxy of Wheaton, where Tim and I grew up in the 1970s and the 80s. And the federal vision today, which is exactly the same as these movements, the driving principle is a desire to take religion back from the crassness of the common people and of those who have demeaned the Holy Spirit and their methods of evangelism. And so they've seen the crassness, they've seen the the lack of respect for the Holy Spirit of the other portion of their world, and they desire to bring it back from that And they want to infuse it with a sense of the profound and the dignified and the respectable, the aesthetically and intellectually sophisticated, the educated. And in the case of Federal Vision and many others in the Reformed world who are going down the same street, but they call themselves by different names, good men despised the powerless religion of the churches they grew up in, the confusion of sentiment with truth, the love of excess, the refusal to think biblically, and so they sought a form of authority outside either the individual raising his hand and saying, I believe, or the evangelist saying, I release you, Holy Spirit. They didn't want either of those. They didn't want this being the paradigm. They said, we reject this. They saw the subjective nature of that kind of religion, understood and rightfully disdained it, They rightly understood that there was a need for authority to oppose this, I did it, this subjectivism, it's all about me. But they decided very wrongly that the answer was the authority of the church. They turned to the very thing that Calvin delivered us from, the rule of Rome, the authority of the priests, salvation through human works, through the sacraments. And they think they're different. That by describing salvation through the church as Federal Vision does as a sociological rather than a mystical process. So they say it's a sociological thing. You come into this community. It's not mystical. It's not transubstantiation, you drinking the body, the blood, eating the body. It's not. It's not the water of baptisms. It's a sociological process. It's by you coming into the community, being accepted, but you're saved by being part of the community, by becoming part of the bride of Christ. They don't submit to the Pope and his priests. They think, well, we've avoided the trap of Roman Catholicism, but they're wrong. Their enhanced view of the nature and power of the church comes at the expense, as it does with Roman Catholicism, of the power and the glory and the authority of the Holy Spirit. They ascribe to the church power and authority that resides in the Holy Spirit alone, and in so doing, they have done great harm to the cause of Christ. I want to move on to Scripture, the Holy Spirit in Scripture. We've spoken of the Holy Spirit and salvation, and that's taken the bulk of our time. But in John 16, 5 through 15, Jesus speaks further about the Holy Spirit. He says, but now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me where are you going. But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled my heart. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. I have many more things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes... He will guide you into all the truth for he will not speak on his own initiative but whatever he hears he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the father has are mine. Therefore I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. Now I'd like to reverse the order of this and I want to make two points out of this passage. First about scripture and then about holiness. First about scripture which is the latter portion of the of what Jesus says he says the Holy Spirit will guide you into all truth and Jesus says I he will be speaking not according to his own will the Holy Spirit will not speak what he thinks and this is amazingly said of a member of the Godhead but he will not speak his own will he will speak the will Jesus himself is subject to that same that same criterion He only says what the Father sent him to say. So it's true of him and it's true of his Holy Spirit. But he will disclose things that belong to Christ and to the Father. This is the second great truth about the Spirit and evangelical religion. First is it's a new birth. The second is that the Spirit gives truth. The Spirit gives understanding. The Spirit discloses. It's a great role of the Spirit to mediate and confirm truth in a way that is understandable. Three things we find in our passage that are always part of the Spirit's work and must always be found in a truly evangelical movement. First, the Holy Spirit discloses, Jesus says, as you're able to hear. He says this to the disciples, but it applies to all men in all times. God makes his truth clear in accord with our ability to hear it over time through the Holy Spirit. It's a direct work of the Holy Spirit. It has always been characteristic of evangelical religion to bring people to the word of God directly and to trust the Holy Spirit to illuminate the word of God. My father used to say to Tim and me, That the greatest doctrine, he didn't say the greatest doctrine, but he would emphasize it more than he emphasized any other doctrine other than justification. The doctrine of the Reformation, the keystone doctrine, he would say, is what? And most of you are going to say justification by faith. And he would emphasize that. But he'd say the great doctrine is the perspicuity of Scripture, which means that Scripture is understandable by the average person. That through the work of the Holy Spirit, we come to know what God is saying in His Word, and we don't need a pastor or a priest and the Bible chained to the wall and someone to tell us what it says. This is always a characteristic of true religion. When there's evangelical religion, people come to the Word of God. They say, I can read this. Years ago, I had the privilege of following my dad and teaching a Bible study in a Roman Catholic nursing home, and it was glorious. The old people, it was at the time when a lot of people were getting dismissed from mental hospitals and going into nursing homes. And there were mental patients there. It was a poverty-stricken nursing home. But you would read the word of God and you would discuss it with them and they would get it. (laughs) They really would understand the word of God. I remember the time that this woman who had been kicked out of the home because she had stood up for other patients in the home when they were getting hit by staff, she was a mental patient. She was crazy. We called her Crazy Betty. But I was moving to Toledo, and we wanted to bring her back because she had been influential in bringing 20 or 30 guys to the study. She'd smoke a cigarette. She had the styrofoam cup filled with her lipstick of coffee, and it was always spilling, and she'd be talking about Jesus. And, and the Sunday that we brought Betty back as I was moving to Toledo, she had been kicked out of the home to another home and I kept on saying as I taught the study, we'll bring Betty back. And I realized we were going to leave and I was, Cheryl and I were going to be pastoring in Toledo and I thought if I don't do it this week I'll never do it. So we went and picked up Betty and we brought her back and she'd been gone six months and Betty had come alive in the Lord. Well several of the men that she had brought were, had had dropped away because one of them said he said, I, I was praying, he was in a wheelchair, he couldn't get there himself, but he didn't ask to be brought anymore, and he said it was because I prayed that God would bring Betty back, and he didn't bring her, and so I'm not coming anymore. Well, that, that day, Greg was his name, heard that Betty was there, and he came, and he was shaking, shaking, he, he was pouring sweat, Greg was probably 80, pouring sweat, shaking, and Betty heard that Greg had not been coming and she stood there this woman who had been in Elgin State Hospital as a schizophrenic and and released to this nursing home and she said you need to come because Jesus is God and you need to trust Jesus and later that night Greg had a stroke and died now schizophrenics can understand the word of God Second, the Holy Spirit does not speak on his own initiative, but only whatever he hears. It's a remarkable statement applied to a member of the Trinity. It's a serious warning that preachers and teachers, and it stands as a hallmark of evangelical religion, that her preachers, truly evangelical preachers, do not make themselves the focus. They are not the focus. If the Holy Spirit exists to bring glory to Christ, then if we stand here and we glorify ourselves, we're travesties. And it is the great failure of the evangelical movement in America that we have worshiped preachers rather than the Holy Spirit, Jesus, and the Father. We think that the word is mediated by the preacher, so that if it's a good preacher then we can worship as though the preacher is the deliverer of the word rather than the Holy Spirit. And I don't deny the importance of preaching. I have a final point I want to make about that. But, but let's remember that anytime time the man is the important thing, then it's not the word. Third, the Holy Spirit always glorifies Christ by taking what is his and disclosing it to others. Some years ago, a, a reformed pastor named Mark Driscoll claimed in a way that was mocked by people for, for years afterward that during sermons, God would reveal things to him. How many of you have heard about this? number of you. He said he looked out and he saw a man and in his mind, he saw him engaging in adultery. And he preached at him. I say, look, any doctrine of of the Holy Spirit is going to say, at times the Holy Spirit is going to, whether this happened with Mark Driscoll or not, I don't know. All I do know is that in getting at Mark Driscoll and mocking him, we'd better be careful not to mock the work of the Holy Spirit who discloses things through the preaching of the word of God. We want preachers who are prophets. The Reformed world has said the preaching of the Word of God is the Word of God. We call it prophecy. And then we back away anytime a man says, I prophesied. Third, holiness. He is the Holy Spirit. I'm rushing past in minutes verses we could spend weeks on. The Holy Spirit, Jesus makes clear, is always working to bring conviction. This is a great principle of evangelical religion. Holy Spirit convicts of sin. The Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit. The Spirit leads men into conviction about their lack of righteousness, about the coming judgment. Evangelical religion takes the Holy Spirit seriously by taking sin seriously, by pursuing righteousness, by believing. Stephen preached that there is a new birth, and therefore we are able to overcome sin If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, which is justification, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, which is sanctification, that the power that gives us the new birth is the power to overcome sin. Don't give me a new birth that leaves me mired in alcohol. Don't give me a new birth that leaves me mired in homosexual desire. Don't give me a new birth that leaves me a thief. It is the Holy Spirit. And he convicts. Finally, and this is the the one that could could consume weeks and weeks. The Holy Spirit comes with power. Acts 1, 6 through 8. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It's not for you to know times or epochs which the Lord has fixed by his own authority but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth you shall receive power and on the day of Pentecost they received power but they did not receive the Holy Spirit on Pentecost did they? Because we know that in the upper room, he breathes on them on the night before he was crucified. And he says to them, receive the Holy Spirit. And he breathes, the pneuma, the breath, the spirit of him goes upon them. So they had received the Holy Spirit. And they had worked by the power of the Holy Spirit when they went out and did their miracles on their their missionary journeys. But he says, you'll receive power. And this is the one thing here that we have to say comes in greater and lesser measure. The, the word of God, the new birth, holiness, those things must be there, and we go and go and go after them. This one is a sovereign gift of God. But it has always been true. The true evangelical religion has been established by God coming alongside through his Holy Spirit and giving power. Power to the preaching power that's there we sat here and we heard Stephen at the end of his sermon say now if you don't know this new birth right remember him saying that kind of like an altar call right and our brains turned off and we said oh that's not for me I know this already you know Uh, maybe there's someone here I hope they hear and we, we started thinking about okay what's next do I have to get my kid And we have no anticipation of power. And I think most of us would honestly have to say, and I'm not saying we don't have the Holy Spirit, but most of us would have to say we've never tasted this power in our lifetimes. But it would be wonderful and entirely in accord with evangelical religion and with the power of the Holy Spirit if just once in our lives we would preach and people would say, the word of God. We would preach and say, do you want to be born again? And people would say, I want to be born again. If we give up on the power of the Holy Spirit, if we ascribe it to the charismatics, or we deny it like the hyper-Calvinists, who say, I don't want to go to the charismatic. We've given up the very heart of our religion. There is a power to the Spirit. And at times, it's poured out and we live for that day if he decides not to we're faithful but there have been times and there have been days and in this if you know martin lloyd jones i think martin lloyd jones is betrayed by his followers because they are so frightened of the charismatic movement that they have defined the power out of the holy spirit but martin lloyd jones the great british preacher of the 1900s in london far of that in Wales did not want to rule out the power of the holy spirit and he was open to the charismatics because he said at least they expect something of god you know what i found i found in my church the best reformed people are the ex charismatics because they expect power from god and it doesn't matter that at one point that power gave them you know hyper health or money They still expect something from God, which many Reformed people don't expect at all. They expect God to have power. God, give us power. May we be churches of power. May the Holy Spirit be on us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask you to bless us. We pray that you will pour out your Spirit on us. And we ask, Father, that there may be Pentecostal power in our churches, in our life, that we may taste what we have not and see what no eye in our generation has seen, at least in America, the pouring out of the Spirit. May it be as a result of persecution. May it be a result of our stand for Christ in the midst of a hostile day. May you pour out power. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. This has been a production of Clear Note Press. Please feel free to share this recording with others, but do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more resources like this, go to clearnutfellowship.org.